to turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be again at verse 13. And see a promise that the Lord made not just to the apostle Peter, but to all the apostles. And uh, study that promise this morning. And when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then charged he his disciples that they tell no man that he was the Christ. It was Simon Peter who spoke up to answer the Lord's question. Many times that's the way it worked. Peter was quick to answer. But he answered rightly. The Lord commended him and promised that being the Son of God, he was going to build a church. The foundation of that church was not going to be Peter. Though a great man, it was not built upon any human being. Because no institution can be any stronger than its foundation. And all humans are sinners. The church is composed of the saved. And therefore its foundation must be of a divine nature. And when Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God... Jesus was referring to that confession, or the truth of that confession, and said, I will build my church upon me, to paraphrase it. But I'm going to give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. We read about different keys in the Bible. Many of them are metaphors, symbolic. We're not talking about, in this case and in other cases, uh, a key made out of brass or made out of iron. But that which represents authority and power and gives a clue to help solve many or other mysteries in the Christian faith. This morning I'd like to look at Peter, the things that he had to say, <clears throat> things that he wrote, and notice some of the mysteries that he helped unlock by the use of these keys that God promised him and the other apostles. Now, when <clears throat> Jesus said, Thou art the Christ, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, in the Greek, the word Peter means Christos. And I'll build my church upon this rock, and that's Petra. They're two different words. Similar in some instances, for example, the first four letters of each one's the same, P-E-T-R. The Petros ends with an O-S, Petra ends with an A. One is masculine, Peter, the other is feminine. And though they sound alike, uh, 
they don't have the same meaning. And I suppose we have a number of English words that are like that. There was an old uh, western rancher, Texas rancher. He said to his son, Son, I want you to take this old horse and have him shod. Well, it wasn't too long till he heard this gunfire. And upon investigation back behind the corral, he found that uh, the horse was dead. And the son said, well, I'm sorry, Father. I thought you said take this horse and have him shot. Well, they sound a lot alike, but there's a lot of difference between shod and shot, especially if you're the horse. Petros and Petra may sound alike. They may have references to a, a similar type of thing, but Peter was just a pebble. And the rock upon which the church was to be built, the deity of Jesus Christ, was a ledge of rock, the Petra. And so they're not the same. Peter was not the foundation, or is not the foundation of the church. <clears throat> in his preaching that we read about in the book of Acts, in his writings, all of it inspired, we find in First and Second Peter, we find a number of things that Peter has to tell us. He gives us a number of keys about the authority, uh, with authority, to unlock these teachings, uh, and we'll find the answers to certain major questions of the Christian faith. First one I'd like to look at is that Peter unlocked the secret of the Davidic kingdom. Now, when we say the Davidic kingdom, we're just using an expression that uh, people used to talk about the kingdom that belonged to David. And I want to turn to a passage. Okay, it's 2 Samuel 7. I suppose I had this marked and I forgot it. 2 Samuel 7. Let me give you a little of the background and then we'll read Promise beginning at verse 12. David said to the prophet Nathan, we need to build a house, a temple, for God. I'm living in a house of cedar, and all he has is this tent to live in. Well, Nathan thought that was a good idea, and so he said, well, go right ahead. I'm sure you'll have God's speed. That night, God appeared to Nathan the prophet and told him, no, it was good that this idea was in the heart of David, but I'm not going to let David build this house, but rather... Instead of letting David build my house, I'm going to build him a house. And the house that he's going to build was that he's going to establish his throne, his kingdom. And no one would sit upon that throne except a descendant of David. Remember the ten northern tribes? They had nine different dynasties. They had 19 different kings, but nine different families. But in the case of Judah, there was only one family. And that was the family of David. So God made an oath or covenant with David. It affected all of Israel, but it wasn't a covenant with them. It was with David. Well, let me read, beginning at verse 12, 2 Samuel 7. <clears throat> verse 12. Well, maybe we ought to start with 11. 
And as from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, this is God speaking, over my people Israel, and I will cause thee to rest from all thine enemies. Moreover, Jehovah telleth thee that Jehovah will make thee a house. Talking to David. Verse 12. When thy days are fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. In other words, David, after you've died. I will set up my, thy seed after thee. That shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. Now, evidently this does not apply to Solomon. Though Solomon was his son and sat upon his throne. But Solomon sat upon the throne before David died, did he not? We can find here a reference to Solomon, his son, to all of his descendants who sat upon his throne, as well as to Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David. So we kind of have to juggle it. I mean, to see which one's which. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And we find that a few times in the New Testament, always applied to Jesus Christ. Taken from this very reference here. Jesus Christ and God the Father. If he commit iniquity, and this is interesting, still verse 14. If David's son commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Well, David never, I mean, Jesus never committed any sins. He never committed any iniquity, so he could not be referring to Jesus here as that son. But he's talking about all of the descendants of David. We know even his first son, Solomon, who sat upon his throne, uh, turned out bad. Started off good, turned out bad. And others even got worse. Well, what did God say? He said, I'm going to punish them. So that when the ten northern tribes pulled away, that was a part of the punishment. Only left two tribes, primarily Judah in the south, with the son of David upon his throne. Later on, the uh, ten northern tribes were carried off into captivity, and God still called them his people, even though they had transgressed and left him and set up idols and so forth. And he sent the Assyrians upon them. Like it said here, I'm going to ch chasten them with uh, the rods of men. And so they were carried off into Assyrian captivity. And then later, about a century and a third, God sent the Babylonians to destroy or to carry off the Judah tribe. And they were in captivity for some 70 years, and then they were brought back, a remnant anyway. So these are things that were happening as fulfillment of God's covenant with David. And the Jews got to thinking about, not, not thinking about this part, this uh, condition in the covenant, why, what's happened to David's uh, son sitting up on the throne? Here we have the Babylonians reigning over us, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, carried us off into captivity. And then after the Babylonian Empire, there were the Medo-Persians, and that went on for some time. And then the Grecian, Alexander the Great. And then the Romans. They said, what happened to God's promise? Well, nothing happened to it. He's carrying it out. He's fulfilling the conditions because they had an idolatry pulled away from God. And so this was a promise that God, set, that God made with David that there would be a son that would sit upon his throne and he would rule forever. Daniel made the same prophecy in Daniel 2 and 4 and so forth in his book. 
And so here we have Peter unlocking the secret of David's kingdom. Humanity might still be looking for the fulfillment of this covenant if Peter had not used the keys and expounded. Look in Acts 2. This is Peter preaching. On the day of Pentecost, he has <clears throat> shown by Joel and David, Old Testament prophecies, that Jesus Christ was the one that God had appointed. That he was the true Messiah. They had made a mistake. Beginning at verse 29, Brethren, this is Peter speaking, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us unto this day. In other words, look at verse 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul unto Hades, neither wilt thou give thy Holy One to see corruption. That's talking about a resurrection. His body, would, the flesh would not see corruption. It would be raised from the dead. Uh, his soul would not be left in Hades, the realm of departed spirits. They were going to be reunited. So that's a resurrection. Peter is saying David, though he spoke, was not speaking about himself. We still have his tomb here today. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, we just read about it in 2 Samuel 7, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins he would set one upon his throne. Verse 31. He foreseeing this spake of the resurrection of the Christ, that neither was he left unto Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus did God raise up, whereof we are all witnesses, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and so forth. When it speaks about Jesus being at the right hand of God exalted, it means he's sitting upon David's throne. And so a number of years passed by from the time of Jeconiah, the last descendant of David to sit upon the throne. Zedekiah sat upon the throne, but he wasn't a true descendant. He was just uh, an uncle of Jeconiah. But from the time of Jeconiah, before they were carried into captivity, or when they were carried into captivity, until Jesus came along, went back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, there was no true descendant of David upon the throne. But Jesus is that descendant. He's sitting upon the throne. Jesus <clears throat> is reigning now. David's uh, kingdom was only a shadow. Every time you read the expression, seated at the right hand of God, is talking about him being the king. He's in a place of position, of authority. All authority was given unto him. Look at Hebrews 8 and 1 and then 12 and 2. <clears throat> Now, in the things which we're saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Jesus is spoken of here as being a high priest and one sitting upon a throne, which means he was a king. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 6, and verses 12 and 13, tells us that this Messiah was going to fulfill two roles. He's going to be a priest. He's going to be a king. But since Jesus was not born of the tribe of Levi, he could not be a priest here upon the earth. He was of the tribe of Judah. 
That's the tribe David came from, and all of his descendants would have to come from, and that's the one Jesus came from. So when Jesus went to heaven, Hebrews 1, verse 3, speaks about him offering his sacrifice as a high priest, sitting at the right hand of God as the king, fulfilling both roles in heaven. And so we have here the Davidic kingdom being, uh, I guess you could say, restored. In Acts 15, when the Gentiles were the question, should they be circumcised? Should they keep the Mosaical law in order to be saved? We find that different ones, such as Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, spoke up. And here's what James had to say in relationship to the kingdom of David. And I will build, this is verse 16, I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men may seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, that's the residue of men, all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who maketh these things known from of old. Well, the tabernacle of David is simply the house of David, the family of David, the kings who were descended from David. And Jesus is the one who reestablished that. Well, I took a little time for that, but let's go on to another one. Peter unlocked the secret of how men are admitted into the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, and 4, and 5, Except one be born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus couldn't understand that. How can a man enter again into his mother's womb and be born? Then Jesus said, except one be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But he didn't go into a lot of details there, did he? Being born of the water, being born of the Spirit, we have all the New Testament so that we can look back and see what he had in mind there. And Peter was one of those who unlocked the mystery of the terms for admission into the kingdom of God. What does he mean by born of water, born of the Spirit? Without going into a lot of details, it's being born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who inspired the Word. That's the seed of the kingdom. It's that seed that's necessary to bring about a birth. The conception. The gestation, I think. Gestation. Okay. And then finally, the coming forth into life was through the waters of baptism. Being born of the Spirit. And of uh, water and the Spirit. Peter opened the doors of the kingdom, explained the terms of entry in Acts 2.36. After, we're just skipping down a few verses from where we were reading earlier. Peter said, And let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered and said, Repent ye, and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. For this promise is to you and to your sons, and to all that are far off, even as many as our Lord God shall call. This promise is to you Jews, it's a promise to your children, your descendants, but it's also to those that are far off. Well, who are those that are far off? Peter didn't realize, evidently, 
when he said that, that he's talking about the Gentiles. But look with me in Acts, I mean Ephesians 2, and we'll begin at verse 11. <clears throat> because here he addresses in this epistle, he's talking specifically to the Gentiles, the, those that were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcision. Verse 11, we'll read down to 13. Wherefore, remember that once ye the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that ye were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers under the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now notice, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye that once were afar off are made nigh in the blood of Christ. And so he says, you Gentiles were the ones who were once afar off. But now, in Christ Jesus, you're near. And so we have Peter on the day of Pentecost saying that this promise that was given first to the Jews, permission into the kingdom, was also meant for them. What are the terms of admission? Well, when he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that means to believe confidently. So verse 36 speaks about the faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord. 38 tells about the repentance and the baptism. So Peter said, you've got to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Lord, the Christ. You've got to repent of your sins and you've got to be baptized for the remission of those sins. Those things were bound by Peter. You remember he said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So here he's binding faith and repentance, and from other verses, confession of one's faith and baptism, for admission into the kingdom of God. Now, he also loosed certain things. God said, whatever you and the apostles preach as loosed, that's already been loosed in heaven. Their message came to the Holy Spirit from heaven. They didn't make it up. That's why the uh, perfect participle is used there. Having been bound, having been loosed. And so they had loosed certain things such as circumcision, Sabbath keeping, subservience to an earthly priesthood, forms of the Mosaical law, burning incense, animal sacrifices, instrumental music and worship. These were things, and there were others, that were loosed by the use of these keys that God gave his apostles. They bound the gospel, faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, and loosed many things. Let's go to another thing. Peter unlocked the door for the Gentiles to enter the church. On the day of Pentecost, he had keys, that's plural, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. But he was just speaking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, but referred to the Gentiles as we've already noticed. But the same terms of ad admittance. But when the apostles sort of, uh, sort of just drifted along on their own volition, the Holy Spirit took a direct hand in things. And so, through a chain of events, 
beginning with an angel that was sent to Cornelius, who was to send in turn for Simon Peter. And the Holy Spirit appearing to Simon Peter, at least giving him a vision. The man, Cornelius, the sinner, was brought together with Peter, the apostle and the preacher. And now Peter announced that God's will for the Gentiles was that they were to be admitted into the kingdom and the terms were to be the same. Would you like to turn to Acts 11? This is where uh, Acts 10 first. Peter has come to Cornelius. He's preaching, beginning at verse 34 and 35. He says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him. So whether they were Jew or Gentiles, God wanted them in his kingdom. Then look at verse um, 43, where he mentions faith or belief. To him bear all the prophets witness, that is to Jesus, bear all the prophets witness, that through his name everyone that believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. And so faith is essential, that's a part of the terms of admission. Chapter 11 and verse 18, Peter's been brought back to Jerusalem. He's having to explain to the Jewish leaders why he went into this Gentile's house, Cornelius's. And so he explains all these things, and then verse 18 says, and when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, not just the Jews, to the Gentiles also hath God granted repentance unto life. And so not only were they to believe, they were to repent of all of their sins, and they were to be baptized. Acts 10, 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the keys show us that Jews and Gentiles were to be in the kingdom. They were to enter by the same rules or conditions for admittance. And still, it's a mystery to some folk because they'll say, you mean baptism is a condition of salvation? A man might say, uh, cannot a man have the Holy Spirit and lead a good life and pray and give of his alms, live blameless without baptism? Uh, do you mean that a man has to be baptized in order to be saved? Well, Cornelius is our Bible answer. He was a wonderful person. You can read in Acts 10, verse 2. You know, he gave much alms to the people, prayed always to God, believed in God and his family as well. Many good things are said about him. But he still was told to send a job and fetch Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall speak unto thee words whereby thou shalt be saved. Acts 11, 13, and 14. Well, let's move on. Peter unlocked the door for backsliders, erring children of God to come back to full fellowship with God. We know that if we could live a perfect life after we become a child of God, this wouldn't be a problem. But who can? Who has? Nobody has, and so we need God's forgiveness. And Satan doesn't give up on us. A man still is tempted and sins 
And even after tasting the joys of redemption in Jesus Christ, what is a Christian who sin going to do? Well, the man with the keys solved this problem, too, in the case of Simon in Acts 8. We might have to turn back to Acts 8. Philip has gone up to Samaria. He's preaching. Many people obey the gospel when they hear concerning that gospel, the kingdom, the name of Jesus Christ. Well, look at verse 13. And Simon also himself believed, and being baptized, he continued with Philip, and beholding signs and great miracles wrought, he was amazed. Now, Simon had a great influence upon the people because through his sorcery, they thought he was some great one of God. Look up at verse uh, 9. But there was a certain man, Simon by name, who before time in the city used sorcery and amazed the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed. Gave heed. From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is, the, is that power of God which is called great. Well, he listened and he obeyed. It's not his words, it's the Holy Spirit that's telling us that Simon also believed and was baptized. What did Jesus promise in Mark 16, 16? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There are people who believe in once saved, always saved, that don't want Simon saved. They say, well, he was really never converted. His heart just wasn't right at the time he was baptized. Well, there are a lot of other passages besides the example of Simon that show a person, once he's saved, can be lost later on. And he's just one of them. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard about the great work Philip was doing in Samaria, they sent two apostles, Peter and John, and when they came, they laid their hands upon these disciples that they might have the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not the gift of the Holy Spirit promised in Acts 2.38 or 5.32 and other places. They had received that. But the Holy Spirit's miraculous gifts they had not received. And that only came through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And Simon saw that. Look at verse uh, 14. Now, when the apostles that were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet it was fallen upon none of them, only they had been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. Ah, but Peter said unto him, Thy silver and thy gold, or thy silver perish with thee, 